Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 23 through chapter 5. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. We're beginning a new uh, study, a new exploration today. And the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically its opening statements, the Beatitudes, are the most preached upon and commented upon passage in the New Testament throughout the last 2,000 years. So I know that I will have probably nothing new to say or to add to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, but they are also probably, according to one writer, the Beatitudes are probably the most misunderstood passage in the New Testament. So I think we will benefit greatly as a congregation. I think each of you, whether you have been a Christian for a very long time or whether you are just starting to follow Jesus or whether you know that you're not quite there yet with Jesus, this is going to be beneficial to us. This is going to be beneficial to you as we rediscover it or discover it for the first time and apply the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount to life today. I think this is going to be really important for us because it seems that tensions in our society are tightening more and more, as if the straps that are holding together the American way of life are threatening to break. Uh, you know our politics, you know this, our politics are polarizing even more as the left and the right both claim exclusive ownership on what it means for people to pursue happiness. That's actually a very old question. That's an ancient question that human beings have been asking themselves for thousands of years. Essentially, what is the good life? 
What is the good life? And how do I know if I'm living it? So the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's answer to that question. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a vision of the good life. In a sense, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount is like, it's like his manifesto of what he was all about, of what the kingdom of God, which was his main subject in all of his teaching and preaching, what the kingdom of God is all about. The blessed life, the good life, according to Jesus Christ, was lived by, is lived by those who seek the kingdom of God and align themselves with its priorities. And this blessed night life is not tied to a political party. It is not tied to a social ideology, although at times social ideologies and political parties may reflect aspects of the priorities of the kingdom of God and the blessed life. But the blessed life is tied to knowing God by following Jesus Christ, his son, and we call that discipleship. And in our life of polarized tribalism, of instantaneous tech gratification, of reactive social media mania, of success-driven ambition, and of self-inventing individualism, you and I and our neighbors need to see a counterculture, as one writer puts it, a counterculture lived out. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, a Christian counterculture. And I hope you will see today as, as we look in general at the entire set of Beatitudes and their context, I hope you will discover that Jesus Christ offers a radically alternative lifestyle that leads to true blessing. Christ offers you an alternative lifestyle that is radical in the eyes of the world, but that ultimately, ultimately leads to true blessing. And then in the next few months, we're going to consider the Beatitudes, eight Beatitudes, or, or another way of saying it is eight blesseds, because uh, Beatitude comes from an old Latin word, which meant blessed, to be blessed. So eight blesseds, eight blesseds that Jesus talks about as he opens his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And today's message is just going to introduce them all as, as one big group. And I really want to try and address two basic questions that you might have when you read through this passage on the Beatitudes. And the first question is this, what is the blessed life? And the second question is, why is it radically alternative? What is the blessed life that Jesus here describes and why is it radically alternative? The blessed life, the, the truly blessed life, according to Jesus, is flourishing in God. Flourishing in God. The word blessed, it appears nine times in this passage. And it can simply tr be translated, as, as Laura mentioned earlier with the children, blessed can simply be translated as happy but it really does mean more than happy. A word that I prefer most based on one scholar's interpretation is the word flourishing. Imagine Jesus saying, flourishing are the poor in spirit. 
Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on and so so forth. When you think of the biblical idea of being blessed, think of what it means to flourish as a human being. Jesus here is presenting a vision of people who are flourishing. Now, for Gentile readers who would have read Matthew's gospel, they would have understood what Jesus was doing here because it sounds an awful lot like the ancient Greek philosophical tradition of asking the question, what is virtue? What is the virtuous life? So the Gentiles would have understood what Jesus was doing here. And there were probably some Gentiles there on the mountainside. But Jewish readers, and Matthew wrote his gospel primarily for a Jewish audience in the first century. Jewish readers would have understood what Jesus was doing here as being in line with their ancient poets and prophets who wrote about wisdom. So the Gentiles were talking about virtue, but the Jews were talking about wisdom. For instance, the Psalms, and we just looked at the Psalms this summer, The Psalms begin with the phrase, blessed is the man who, what? Who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. The Psalms begin with that phrase, blessed, and it's the the Hebrew version of the Greek word here for blessed. Blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. The second Psalm ends with these words, blessed are those who take refuge in the Son. In the Messiah. Psalm 32 begins with these words Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. You even see it in the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 13 begins with these words Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and gets understanding. Proverbs 28 Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. As you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, it seems that blessedness or flourishing is inseparably tied to knowing God and loving God and obeying Him. From this Jewish wisdom tradition, Jesus announces His Beatitudes. He stands up there on the mountainside preaching to the crowds And from that wisdom tradition, he says, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. So to understand the Beatitudes, we must read them like Old Testament wisdom literature. We must read the the Beatitudes like we read the Proverbs. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament Proverbs, you know that Proverbs are not, they're not divine promises. Rather, the Proverbs are human observations, divinely inspired human observations. But but Proverbs are not divine promises. They're human observations of how things are, how the world works. Uh, For instance, when Proverbs 22 tells us, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is not God's promise to you that good parenting will produce good people. Some of you know that by now. (laughs) Some of you are still discovering it and have yet to. That's not a promise from God. Rather, it is a wise observation that, generally speaking, good parenting 
produces good character. Jesus' Beatitudes, therefore, uh, the Beatitudes, they observe, they even declare how God extends his grace in a broken world. And actually, some people will possess the kingdom of heaven and will inherit the earth. The nature of things in the kingdom of God is that some people will inherit it forever and will experience it in part right now in this broken world. That is the message of what Jesus is trying to say. And the way they possess the blessed life, the way they flourish as human beings is directly tied to what Jesus is going to say in this famous sermon about the priorities of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is talking all about what it means to flourish, to have, to live, and eventually to inherit true life. Now, at this point, I want to ask you a question, because sometimes I open it up for, for your comments and your input. And just very briefly, based on your backgrounds and your traditions and your environment, what makes someone appear to be blessed? Right? So, so when you think of people who are blessed, whether you read about them in the news or watch them in the movies or see them post on social media, according to your tradition and your background and your current environment, how do people appear to be blessed? What makes people seem to be blessed? And I want to hear from you right now. I am not looking for Sunday school answers. What do you really think? What are you observing? Yeah. A problem-free life. Problem life. Great. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Tropical, vacation. tropical vacations. Sandals, 1-800, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. A tropical... I saw a hand over here. No? I thought I saw a hand. But you complain about everything that makes you think your life would be really great. Okay. So, so, so... You feel blessed when, you, when you're looking at your life compared to people who are complaining about everything. Well, Comparison. Things. Little things. People complaining about little things. Yeah, she's on to something. But somebody else, yeah. Wealth and status. Yeah. Yeah, right here. Okay, same thing. Somebody else? Yeah. Where they, they can sound like their kids are doing, prospering, doing well, everything's doing well. Their kids are doing great, no problems, things are going, your kids are struggling, and theirs are like, you know, the class president, and six-figure salaries, and Fortune 500 companies, and not in jail, and all that stuff. <laughs> um, and, and somebody even just said right now, uh, holiday letters, Christmas letters, right? In our, in our Christmas letters, and, and in our Facebook and Instagram posts, we're, we're, not posting, we're not posting our marital fights at 11 p.m. at night. We're not posting our kid, my son got sent to the principal's office today. We're, we're, not po we're posting what we're enjoying. We're, we're posting the good things. And, and that's fine. That's fine. But then we look at other people's good experiences and we go, oh, I feel like garbage because my kids don't look like that. They don't, my, my, my kid hasn't achieved that status. I wish they wouldn't keep reminding me of how good their kids are doing, right? So we, we all get it. And then, you know, the Germans came up with all sorts of words that describe um, feeling good about somebody else's failure. 
But there's the opposite, is feeling like a failure compared to somebody else's good. Yeah, our culture and your family traditions and your ethnic and racial traditions and how you're doing right now based on your peers, who you work with, who you study with, who you play with, all feed ideas to us of what the blessed life actually is. Jesus's blessed life is radically alternative because it is paradoxical. It defies common logic. It defies the way the world thinks. When Jesus says, blessed are you, it is not the way the world's thinking about being blessed. Look at the Beatitudes. We're going to look at each of them individually over the next several weeks, but, but most of the characteristics highlighted in the Beatitudes, people aim to avoid most of the time. Think about it. How many of the Beatitudes are you praying f- to receive and looking forward to experiencing? Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, persecuted, right? If you want to find a way to never get a job, at your next job interview, when they ask you, where do you see yourself in five years? Tell them, oh, I hope I will be spiritually bankrupt, really sad, sick, and persecuted. That's a way of never getting a job in this world because that's the last thing anybody wants to hear. And I don't encourage you to try and get a job that way. These are not things that we aim for. And, and even the more positive looking beatitudes like hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker, these are not the values that our society praises or promotes, are they? Just even just, I don't get political, but I'll say this very briefly. When you think about the political right in our society, their big mantra is protect yourself. The blessed life is achieved if you and I protect ourselves. The political left says to us, no, that's not it at all. Express yourself. The blessed life is achieved if you and I express ourselves. Jesus didn't say any of that. And why? Why is Jesus so paradoxically upside down in his view on what the good life is? Well, look at whom he was talking to. That may give us an answer. Most, we've talked about how most of the characteristics he highlights are things that we avoid. But most of the people highlighted in this passage are people whom people aim to avoid. Look at the end of chapter 4. So his fame, this is leading up to why the Sermon on the Mount happened, Okay. So the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he had been baptized, he had suffered, been tempted in the wilderness, he was collecting his disciples. And we're told by Matthew at the end of Matthew chapter 4, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought, it was the Roman province, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds 
followed him. And Matthew tells us, based on where all those crowds were coming from, that both Jewish and Gentile communities had heard about him, had seen his miracles, and were following him. And among them were people like this. If you will, in our contemporary wording, among the crowds were the mentally ill, the homeless, those carrying forms of hepatitis, those who had been recently incarcerated. Among the crowds listening as Jesus taught from the mountainside were people that we tend to avoid. Now, what are we to make of all of that? Is Jesus saying that sickness and insanity and hunger and pain are tickets to heaven? It's been misinterpreted that way. No. Uh, The Beatitudes do not teach us that if we become wretched, that will bring God's favor to us. No, the, the Beatitudes teach us that God's favor belongs to anyone despite their wretchedness who seeks him. It's on that paradox which defies the world's logic. It's on that paradox that Jesus builds his kingdom. It's on that paradox that Jesus builds a vision of a radically alternative lifestyle that he talks about experience after experience, point for point, example for example, throughout the Sermon on the Mountainside. And the question I want to ask you as we begin to look at these Beatitudes is, where are you in this sermon? Let's each ask ourselves, where am I in this sermon? Where are you in the landscape, on the landscape? Look at the beginning of chapter 5. Picture yourself there. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are you. And on and on he went. So imagine that you're there in ancient Palestine by the Sea of Galilee, looking up on a mountainside, and there is Jesus in a place where he could be heard by thousands of people on the mountainside, projecting audibly out to those beneath him who who were listening on the side of the hill. Just imagine that you're there, but now ask yourself, where are you on the landscape? Are you among the crowds, or are you with his disciples? Because we're told by Matthew that both were there, that the disciples were there and came to Jesus as he opened his mouth and taught them, but they were amongst the crowds who had been following Jesus. Most people were drawn to Jesus as you read the gospel of Matthew, read all the gospels. You will discover that most people were drawn to Jesus, but many refused in the end to learn from him. He would say things, and the things he said got harder and harder, and more and more and more of them would back away. And in the very end, the night before he was executed, even his closest disciples deserted him. Where are you? Are you among the crowds, or are you with his disciples? Are you intrigued by Jesus? Are you curious about him? Are you impressed with him, but just among the crowds? Then ask yourself, What is holding you back from following him? What is holding you back from obeying Jesus' words here? What is holding you back from actually 
trusting him with the things that he is about to say in this sermon. What is holding you back? Unless Jesus' priorities become yours, you will never possess the good life. You will never flourish. So I'm encouraging you to consider this, wherever you're at right now spiritually. Emerge from the crowds milling around Jesus and become a disciple, a true disciple. Now, in order to do that, some of you already know this, you have to also ask the question, where is Jesus in this sermon? You have to know where you are, but where is Jesus on the landscape? You may remember somebody else went up on a mountain once and came back down with truth. Ten Commandments. Moses ascended a mountain alone. And when he returned with the truth of God, he was, he was a covenant mediator between God and the people. But Jesus invites us up onto the mountain with him. You see that? Jesus ascends the mountain to bring truth, but he invites anybody, the crowds, the sick, the lame, the possessed, the outcasts, and everybody else who was interested in what was going on and those who wanted to give up everything to follow him. And he brings them up on the mountain with him. And he says that they can be blessed by his Father in heaven. And the Apostle Paul would later say in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. You see that Jesus backed up his teachings. He's going to back up. He would back up one day everything he's about to say on this mountainside with action. Right? He put his actions where his mouth was. And he proved that he meant what he said ultimately by dying for that truth and by dying for those who would trust in that truth and follow him as his true disciples. But when he rose from the dead, the Lord of heaven proved that the blessed life, true flourishing, is possible because Jesus possesses it. He's not just a teacher to bring truth, to talk about virtue. He died and rose from the dead, proving once and for all that Jesus possesses the good life, the true life, true flourishing. And he offers it to anybody, despite their wretchedness, who will follow him. So the Beatitudes, they're not laws. They're not like a new version of the Ten Commandments, despite the similarity in images there. Think of them as eight character traits. Eight character traits that describe Christ's true followers, that describe people who receive and inherit the kingdom of God. How their priorities shape their lives. And subsequently, how the world reacts to these people whose priorities are in line with the kingdom of God. But Jesus offers you a radically alternative lifestyle, and it is the only life that leads to true blessing, to true flourishing. 
So emerge from the crowds wherever you are. Emerge from the crowds where you work. Emerge from the crowds where you study, whether it's on a campus or at a high school or a middle school. Emerge from the crowds. Emerge from among your friends and become a disciple. Look at what Jesus is offering you. The kingdom of God, the life of God and become a disciple. You'll never regret it. And join me in the next several weeks. We're going to look at each beatitude and see the priorities of the kingdom of God and how we can have and exhibit and proclaim the blessed life. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see Jesus proclaiming the blessed nature of your kingdom and those who possess it. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear the words of Jesus as he proclaims your grace to sinners. Father, take us, help us to journey up the mountainside with the Lord Jesus Christ as he opens his mouth to speak truth to us. And Father, I ask that you would tear down the idols, the things in our lives and in our society, maybe even good things that have become ultimate things, things that we, even if, even if we have not realized it, have worshiped in your place. Teach us what is true wisdom. Teach us what is true virtue. Teach us what it means to flourish. Father, I pray that we would flourish, that this would not just be an academic study, but that the world, that the county, that Westminster would look at us, we who worship here, and say, what is it about that community of faith? What is it about that family? What is it about that individual? Why do they seem, despite their wretchedness, despite what's going on in their life, to be blessed? Why are they flourishing when they should not be? Father, may our lives reflect that. Open our ears, open our eyes so that we can see. In the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.